All right, Revelation chapter 2. This morning we are going to begin our study on the church of Thyatira. And if you've, if you've joined us this morning, maybe for the first time or it has been a few weeks since you joined us, uh, we are going through the seven churches in the book of Revelation, and there are seven letters that Jesus Christ sends to seven real historical churches in the book of Revelation. And, and we've said this all along, but I want to just remind you that each of these churches represent, number one, true historical churches. They were real churches in the first century that existed during the Apostle John's life that Christ had something to say to specific to that church and its circumstances. And so these are real churches. But number two, they're also representative of seven types of churches. As we, as we study these seven churches in Revelation, these are the seven types of churches that have existed all throughout church history. And then number three, they also represent for us the entirety of church history. And if we were to go back to the, to the book of Acts all the way uh, to the rapture of the church and study the entire history of the church age, what we really would see is that s- these seven churches really represent in type and picture the seven uh, stages or, or periods of church history from the book of Acts through the rapture of the church, and, and we're, we're making that application in each of these churches. And then fourthly, I want you to understand there's also a tribulation context to each of these seven churches because there's just some things that God mentions in in these seven churches that can't possibly apply directly to New Testament believers. And so there is a doctrinal application that's prophetic in nature. See for reference Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, where, where Stephen is preaching to the nation of Israel and calls Israel in the Old Testament a church. And, and listen, they were the church in the wilderness, but those people were not saved. They were not bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. They were not sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, and they were not the bride of Christ. And yet God called them a church, and so there is an application to be made through these seven churches that there is a prophetic application for the tribulation. And so, again, uh, how much of that we can truly understand right now is, is certainly uh, subjective, in, in my opinion. And so what we're doing is we're looking at, at these seven churches from John's perspective. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, John tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, and he's looking backwards from the vantage point of the day of the Lord, and he's looking and writing about what he has seen, past tense. And so again, he's seeing these seven churches representative of seven periods of church history. And he begins with the church of Ephesus. And the name Ephesus means fully purposed. It's like God gave a one-word summary of that entire church period with the name of that church. And, And literally, the name Ephesus means fully purposed. And listen, we began talking about Ephesus several weeks ago, and we said this was a church. If you were looking for a church to land at, this would have been a really good church. It was a productive church. It was a persevering church. It was a patient church. Man, they even, they even had a holy stance because they couldn't bear those which were evil. It was a powerful church. It was a predisposed church. It had a lot of things going right for it. And yet, Jesus corrected the church of Ephesus, saying, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And what we said about the church of Ephesus was what, what happened both 
historically in the real church of Ephesus and historically in church history is that people came on the scene right after the death of the apostles. And they began to use phrases and terminology that were not found in the scriptures. As a matter of fact, they were called false apostles. And and they began to deviate from the teachings of the apostles of Jesus Christ and from the apostle Paul. And so in church history, these people called the apostolic church fathers began to deviate in in their writings and in their teachings from the word of God. They lost and left their first love. And because of that, false doctrine began to creep into the church. And then the second church that we studied was the church of Smyrna. And and that one word encapsulation, the word Smyrna, literally is the same word as myrrh, which is always associated with death in the Bible. And God says of this church, the church at Smyrna, that not only were there false apostles, but now Satan has set up a synagogue in Smyrna. And, and, and what we see is, again, this church period was, was powerful. It was a persecuted church. As a matter of fact, Christ said to this church that you need to be faithful unto the death. And, and the truth is, many of them were. Because the persecution that began to happen in the church period of Smyrna, we talked about the 10 official Roman persecutions that came against the church from, from 200 to 325 AD and many of those believers man gave their life for what they believe they just believe what you believe they believe Jesus Christ is the son of God they believe the words of God were true they, they just believed what you believed and listen they gave their life for it and, and and what we see is not only church history as we look at these churches but we see how Satan comes against the church and so those first two periods there was tremendous persecution there was opposition there was false doctrine and then we studied the church of Pergamos. And the, per- the Pergamos church can be encapsulated with the words much marriage. Because now at the church of Pergamos, Satan not only uh, had a synagogue there, but now Satan has actually a seat in the city of Pergamos. And, and we said this last week, I'll say it again. These seven churches represent for us the strategic move of Satan against the body of Christ. If you want to see how the devil works... Pay attention to these seven churches. And so he, he moved from false apostles to now having a synagogue, which, by the way, is Jewish, to now having a seat in Pergamos. And, and that seat was a seat of authority. And, man, there was some whacked-out stuff in Pergamos. Christ reveals him to that, himself to that church as, as he that had the sharp two-edged sword. And, again, a good church, man, a laboring church, a loyal church. They held fast to Christ's name. The problem is they didn't hold fast to Christ's word. And in that church at Pergamos, both historically and representatively of church history, there were people that began to hold false doctrine. And the two doctrines that that Christ himself comes against are the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And God says about those things, I hate them. So there were people in the church holding false doctrine because they didn't hold the word of God doctrine matters in a church and doctrine has to be defended in a church and and no offense not just anybody gets to set the doctrine for the church that's Christ's job the the Bible is the authority in this church and the doctrine comes from the word of God rightly divided in context and will be defended 
by pastoral leadership because we see that model all the way through the New Testament. And so, and so Christ corrects this church of Pergamos and he calls them to repentance and he, he promises to the overcomer that he's going to give them some things and we talked about it. And last week we spent a lot of time saying that historically really what happened in history is that the church was married to the world. And Satan, through his religious and political system, did nothing more than bring Old Testament Babylonian false religion into New Testament Christianity. And he set in place a counterfeit religious system that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 10 at Babel. And now, through Constantine's Christianizing of paganism, there's a universal church system. And there's Christian nations, terms that never are found in the Bible, by the way. And, and pagan worshipers who worshiped a mother goddess and a, a false deity son named Tammuz, well, now that's been carried over into, into Christianity. But it's not Christianity. It's a counterfeit to Christianity. And, and so what, what the devil couldn't do in those first two church periods in persecuting the church to wipe it out, well, instead of countering it, he decides to counterfeit it in the Pergamos church period. And so all of a sudden now, because under persecution, the church continued to grow. The blood of the, the martyrs is the seed of the church, so to speak. And, and the more Christians that were killed and give their life for the gospel, well, the more the gospel spread throughout the world. And that's not what Satan wanted. So he said, okay, let's, let's change tactics. And he changed tactics. And what he did was he, he just Christianized paganism and made it religious. And now all of a sudden the, the, the church had married the world. And, and Satan now has a, a seat in authority over a universal religious system. Okay, and, and then all of that's reviewed because this morning we need to get to Thyatira with the time we have left. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 26, we're going to read about the fourth church in this study, the church of Thyatira. Look at, look at the verses with me. It's on the screen. Verse 18, John writes and he says, Under the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things offered unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins of the hearts, and I will give unto every, every one of you according to your works. But I say unto you and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put no other burden. So the point is, there were some people in Thyatira that didn't ascribe to the doctrine that was being propagated in Thyatira. I want you to understand that, that there were some people that didn't buy into this religious system that the, the devil had set up, okay? 
We'll get, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Verse 25, but that which ye have already hold fast till I come, and he that overcometh and keepeth my words to the end, to him I will give power over nations. And so we're going to stop there. I know there's more verses. We'll stop there. Each of these churches, we're following a basic outline. Number one, we're going to talk about the church. Then we're going to talk about Christ and how he reveals himself to this church. Then we're going to look at the commendation. If Christ has anything positive to say to these churches, we want to take note of that. But then we're going to look at the correction because there's some things that he tells the churches you need to do better. And then he always leaves them with a challenge. And so just a basic outline that we're following. This morning, we're only going to get two points into that. Number one, let's start with the church. The church of Thyatira. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write. And in your notes, the word Thyatira literally could be translated odor of affliction. And, 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 and we'll, we'll really get into that next week. But that's what the word means. That's God's one-word one encapsulation of this entire period of church history. Thyatira is an interesting city because it, like a few other of these cities mentioned in Revelation, show up in other portions of Scripture. So when we studied the church of Ephesus, we went back to Acts chapter 18 and 19 because Ephesus is found in other portions of Scripture. Laodicea, as we'll get to as the, as the seventh church, is actually found in the book of Colossians. Thyatira is also found other places in the Bible. It's actually only found one other place. And it's in Acts chapter 16. And there's something very interesting about this. And I don't believe it's coincidental. Because, because in the two places that Thyatira is mentioned in Scripture, the book of Revelation and the book of Acts, there's a very key observation we need to understand. In both places where Thyatira is mentioned... There's a connection to two different women. Women goes in your blank. And this is very interesting to me because as we study Scripture and compare Scripture with Scripture, we have to take note of what God reveals to us. Acts chapter 16 is the only other place in your Bible where Thyatira is mentioned. And in Acts chapter 16, what you have is Paul's second missionary journey. Let's read it. Verses 11 to 15, I think are on the screen. Look at this. Therefore, loosening from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief part of, of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. So Paul's in Philippi in Macedonia. This was after the Macedonian call. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city, here it is, of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended to the things which were spoken of by Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Okay, this is very interesting. Because as we study the city of Thyatira in the Scripture, one of the key observations is that in each city, in Revelation 2 and in Acts chapter 16, there's a prominent woman that's mentioned by name. And these two women are going to represent something for us. Actually, they're going to represent several things for us. So let, let's talk about it just a second. Number one, let's talk about this woman named Lydia in Acts chapter 16. In all probability, this is a Gentile woman 
She's also the first convert uh, of the European mission journey, the, the second mission journey of the Apostle Paul, and she's a businesswoman. And so if anybody says the Bible's against women, well, you're going to have a really hard time in Acts chapter 16 because the very first convert in Europe is a successful businesswoman. Here she is. Number one, she's a successful woman. The Bible says that she's a seller of pur- purple. She's a busy businesswoman, but she wasn't too busy to make time for God. She was observing the Sabbath. She was gathering for a time of prayer. When you study Lydia, you're going to find a lot of parallels back to Proverbs 31, which defines for us the virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 and verse 22 says that that virtuous woman maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. And so she's a seller of purple. She represents her in type or picture, the virtuous woman. Number two, she's a fearful woman because she's a worshiper of God. She worshiped God, and yet she needed more revelation. And God brought Paul and his ministry team to share the gospel with her. She's a lot like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 feared God, prayed, and gave alms but he didn't have a real relationship with God, and so God had to send Peter to preach the gospel to him. And let me just say this. Listen, God, God honors how you respond to the revelation you have. Let me just give you something free. Listen, in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 16, here are people that, that worshiped God, that came out and prayed to God, and God said, okay, I see your heart. You need the rest of the story. And God sent the person with the message to give them the rest of the story. Because God, God lights every man that comes into this world. There's, there's general revelation available to everyone through creation and through conscience. And how you respond to that will determine how God gets specific revelation to you. Man, nobody's falling through the cracks with God. I mean, we like to argue, what about the guy that's never heard the gospel? Okay, what about the guy that's never heard the gospel? What did he do with creation and conscience? And if he responded rightly to that, guess what God is going to do? God's going to make sure he gets the gospel. If he'll respond right to the revelation he has, God will make sure that he gets more revelation. So here's a fearful woman. She feared the Lord. Number three, she was a reachable woman. Because the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart And the reason that she was reachable, number four, is because she was teachable. Because she attended to the things which were spoken of Paul. In other words, she took heed. She gave herself to what was being taught. And listen, people are reachable because they're teachable. And what we need to teach them is the gospel. I mean, mean, listen, and by the way, your teachability doesn't end at the moment you got saved. You ought to still be teachable after you got saved. You ought to have an open heart to still be reachable and teachable with God's Word after salvation. And, and, then, and then lastly, this woman was a faithful woman because she responded to the gospel. She responded to the preaching of the gospel. She was baptized. Her household followed her in faith. And then she said, if you judge me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide here. And she constrained us. Listen, this first European convert, man, What a picture, number one, of a right response to the gospel. But number two, man, Lydia is kind of a picture of the church, the bride of Christ. 
right? She's a picture of that virtuous woman. She's a Gentile woman that comes to faith in Christ and responds rightly to the Word of God. And she's from Thyatira. But listen, there's another woman from Thyatira, and her name's Jezebel. And we just read some things about her. And, And can I tell you, there's never been a more polar opposite woman in the Scripture. I'm telling you, listen, everything that Lydia is is everything that Jezebel ain't. And so listen, she's not a successful woman, but number one, she's a seducing woman. Jezebel is a seducing woman because in verse 20 it says that she seduces, God says of her, she seduces my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Man, this is a witchy woman right here. And she absolutely is against Christ and the things of God's. Number two, she's a fearless woman. In other words, she has no fear of the Lord. Where Lydia had fear of the Lord, she was fearful because she knew who God was. Man, listen, this woman operates in absolute fearlessness. She has no fear of the Lord. She's in absolute rebellion against God. Number three, she's an unreachable woman. Because in verse 21, God says, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. In other words, she's an unrepentant, rebellious woman. And because she's unreachable, number, number four means that she's unteachable. As a matter of fact, what you find in this passage is that not only is she unteachable, she's the one in the church that's doing the teaching, She's a self-proclaimed prophetess in the, ter- in the church propagating false doctrine. Are you kidding? And we're going to get to that. I mean, we're going to deal with that, man. She's unteachable, but she had no problem teaching others. Number five, she's unfaithful. She's unfaithful. She wasn't full of faith, but rather she was full of false doctrine. And so listen, these two women from Thyatira paint a powerful picture for us one is a gentile woman who submits and surrenders to the word of god and has a transformed life and by the way a transformed household because of what she believes one represents a gentile woman who rejects and opposes and falsifies the word of god who lacks repentance and whom the lord himself will judge one is responsible for getting the gospel in all likelihood back to the city of thyatira You want to know why there's a church in Thyatira? Well, it's probably because a a woman named Lydia possibly took it back there. And that's conjecture and speculation, but that's the only woman in Thyatira that we see that came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, And listen, what a powerful testimony if that's the case. And again, that's speculation. But listen, one is responsible for the spread of the gospel back to her city. The other is responsible for the spread a paganistic babble religion that counterfeits true biblical Christianity. So, so not only are these two types of uh, these two women obviously types of individuals, but they're types of religious systems. But thirdly, they're also types of individuals claiming to be Christians. Man, can I just tell you, Jezebel was in a church. She was in a church but there was no real spirituality about her. And she had no problem teaching a lesson either, by the way. She was full of doctrine. She she had what, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 says, she had a form 
of godliness, but she denied the power thereof. She was powerless in in the real spiritual sense, and yet she's right in the middle of a church, actually the one teaching and preaching in that church as a self-proclaimed prophetess of God. So what do we learn from that? Well, number one, we need to learn that that there is genuine biblical Christianity. And, and, And there's also genuine biblical Christians. But just as there are genuine biblical Christianity and Christians, there's always counterfeit Christianity and there's always counterfeit Christians. And, and I, can't, I can't let you leave this morning without asking the question, which one of those women do you re- represent and resemble more? Do you represent and resemble Lydia, who, who is a true believer in Christ, who, who comes to Christ and, and is teachable and reachable with the Word of God, who's full of the fear of God? Or listen, would you, would you happen to be sitting in the church today and the truth is you more aligned with Jezebel? You can teach a lesson all day long. But the truth is, man, you, you have no fear of the Lord. The truth is, you, you possibly seduce people with your teaching to commit things that are absolutely contrary to the Word of God. You're unreachable because you're unrepentant. You're unteachable because if you're not teaching, nobody can teach you. I know, I know that's like, man, really? Yeah, well, well, well we have people like that in churches. And the truth is, we probably have them in this church because we're a church. And what we can learn from those two women is we probably are one or the other. We're certainly not both. We're certainly not both. And so who is it that I resemble more? And, and listen, the answer is we need to be like Lydia, right? We need to be like true believers in Jesus Christ and to exercise biblical Christianity. Okay, so that's the city of Thyatira. And then number two, let's talk about Christ because because. Man, we've got to talk about Christ. Verse, verse 18, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. And, and we've mentioned this in every church. Christ, number one, addresses the church. And then number two, he reveals a characteristic about himself that that church specifically needs to grab hold of and identify with and understand. And so... In this church, Christ reveals himself as the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. So three things that we'll talk about will be done this morning. Number one, Christ reveals himself with a very specific title. And he reveals himself to this church as the Son of God. Now again, if you're a student of the Bible, if you, if you kind of know how to study the Bible and compare Scripture with Scripture, you run that phrase, Son of God, through the New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, you're going to find some interesting things. What's very interesting is that's the only time in the book of Revelation that the phrase Son of God shows up. It's the only time in the book of Revelation. And so Christ, because of what's happening in Thyatira, this Jezebel, self-proclaimed prophetess, false religious system, mother goddess thing that has taken over, Christ comes right against that, number one, with the title, these things saith he that's the Son of God. That's how he comes against that. And, and so what we need to understand is that Christ reve- is revealing himself as God in the flesh, okay? And, 
and, and we need to take a little time. I think we've got a little time. I notice you're not hungry right now, so we're good. So uh, we need to talk about that title, the Son of God. By the way, it's capitalized in your Bible. And, and as it's capitalized, there's an important reason it's capitalized. If we were to go all the way back to Genesis, we need to know that the Son bears the image of the Father. That's not in your blanks or in your notes, but, but it maybe is worth writing down that the Son bears the image of the Father. And, and if we were to go back to Genesis 1, before Adam and Eve sinned, God said that we're going to make man in our image and after our likeness. And, and God reached down into the dust of the ground and he formed a man named Adam. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and, and he became a living soul. So he had a body, a soul, and a spirit. And Luke chapter 3 and verse 38 says that Adam was the son, lowercase s, by the way, of God. He, he bore the image and likeness of God. And we know that after Adam sinned, Adam began to have children in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3. But when he began to have children, his children bore his fallen image. Because it says in Genesis 5 and verse 3 that Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image. I just want to make sure you're awake. And he called his name Seth. So the son always bears the image of the father. That's an important principle because when Christ says that he is the Son of God. What is, he, what is he saying? What he's saying is he is the image of the invisible God. He is God manifest in the flesh. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Chris and I were discipling this week, and we had a little bit of conversation about this. Man, sometimes people don't understand. When we say that Christ is the Son of God, some people would say, well, that makes him inferior to God because he's God's Son. You know, he, he's inferior to God. Well, listen, that, that's not how the Bible defines the Son of God. The Son carries the image of God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the... The what? The invisible God. So we know from the book of John that God is a spirit. We know from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 that God is invisible. So how do you see God? Well, you see God through his image. And his image is the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ. It's God manifest in the flesh. By the way, verse 16 says, By him, the image of the invisible God, were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created by Him, the Son. Oh, and by the way, for Him. Christ Himself is the Creator. The Son of God manifests Himself in the flesh. That's called the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9 says that in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you, could, if you could somehow put God in a body and look upon him, well, you can. It's, it's the person of Christ. That's, that's who he is. 
Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 says this, Paul addressing the elders at Ephesus. He says, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Listen, to feed the church of God, which he, God, hath purchased with his own blood. You see, God has blood because God is manifest in the flesh. He has a body in the person of Jesus Christ. And listen, Christ is revealing himself to this church as the Son of God. He, he didn't reveal himself as the Son of Man. As, and by the way, if you, if you have studied that phrase, Son of Man, that's a messianic term. It, it specifically deals with the nation of Israel and their Messiah. And, and that phrase is used two other times in the book of, of Revelation. But the Son of God only shows up once. By the way, the, the phrase son of man doesn't show up a single time in any of the Pauline epistles to the churches. But the son of God does. And the reason why is because, man, he is God in the flesh. And he bled out and died and was buried and rose again for my sin and for yours. And so when Christ reveals himself to this church, he's revealing himself as the son of God and what that signifies is his deity and his authority. Because he carries with him the very image of the invisible God with all power and authority. He is the creator, the maker, and the sustainer of all things and by all things. They were all made and by those things. They, they consist because of him. They exist because of him. Without him, this universe would fall apart. He has power and authority because he is God. And that's how he's revealing himself to this church. And man, that's, that's pretty strong. And the reason it's so strong is because of what's happening in that church. Number two, Christ reveals something about his eyes. And the Bible says that his eyes are like a flame of fire. And again, we, we saw this earlier in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. When John sees the glorified Christ, it says his head and his ears were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And, and listen, John would have been certainly familiar with seeing Christ's eyes in his human body, but now he's seeing him in a glorified body. And he's like, man, those eyes are just full of fire. You see it again in Revelation 19 and verse 12. It says his eyes were as a flame of fire. And the context of Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ. There's just something powerful about those eyes, man. Man, when you study the Word of God, Proverbs 15, verse 3 says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. In other words, God's eyes are omnipresent. They're in every place, but they're also omniscient because they know everything. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 says, Neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do so whatever you think you're hiding from the lord he sees it he knows it you can't turn the lights off dark enough you can't dig a hole deep enough you can't hide your sin well enough because he knows he knows his eyes are omniscient by the way hebrews 4 verse 13 when you, when you get to understand the Bible like this, you really can be a pastor now. It follows verse 12. 
And if you come back next week, I'll have more solid gems like that from the pulpit. But can I have you go back to verse 12? And, and, and I don't think it's on the screen, but many of you know Hebrews 4 and verse 12. Listen, that's that famous verse about the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then verse 13, neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight, the Word of God's sight. That, that's why when we sit through a church service, we listen to the Word of God, we, we sit through discipleship, we, we spend time in God's Word. I mean, it's like the eyes of the Lord are just beholding both the evil and the good in our life. He can see right through us. And what, what I can hide from, from family and friends, listen, He sees right through it. He knows those eyes of fire, man, listen, they, they're omniscient, they're omnipresent. And listen, they are going to execute justice. As a matter of fact, when we, we, we study the judgment seat of Christ, one of the things that we find is that every man's work, 1 Corinthians 3, is going to be revealed by fire. You know why? Because the Lord's going to look at it through eyes of fire. What would you do with your life from the time you got saved forward? This is not a judgment for sin, but it is a judgment of service. What did you do with your life from the time you got saved forward? And the Lord is going to examine that body of work. And he'll give reward based on what sort it is. Man, that will put fear of God in us. See, the, the eyes that are like a flame of fire, they signify Christ's justice. They signify his justice because, listen, his eyes, they're representative of his character. And his character certainly is love, man, and grace and mercy. But it's also holiness and righteousness and justice. And man, listen, he has eyes that see the truth no matter what. And then, and then lastly, the way he reveals himself to this church is he says something about his feet. And he says that his feet are like fine brass. And not just any brass, but fine brass. And by the way, this is the only place in Scripture where you'll find that phrase, fine brass. You see it again in Revelation 1 and verse 15. You see it in Revelation chapter 2. And listen, there's something about his eyes and his name, but there's something special about his feet too, man. And as we study Scripture, we're going to see that these brass feet show up over and over again in Scripture. And God has some things that He's going to do with His feet that are of note that we need to pay attention to. Number one, Christ's brass feet are going to split the Mount of Olives at His second coming. Man, those brazen feet that were as if they burned in a furnace, man, those feet are going to touch down on this planet one day at His second coming. And when they do, they're going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. The Bible says his feet shall stand in that day, the day of the Lord, upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Man, it's his brazen feet that, man, when they land on that mountain... It's going to split it right down the middle because of his power and because of his glory and because of his judgment. Number two, Christ's brass feet are going to crush Satan's head. 
Hallelujah to that, right? That was prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where, where, where after Adam and Eve fell, and the Lord shows up in the garden, and he's, he's delegating the, the, the punishment and the consequence of sin to, to Adam and then to Eve, and then, and then to Satan, he says, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It, her seed, is going to bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. For reference, Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, the Bible says, The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, man. It, it's coming soon where Satan's going to get what he deserves, man. Those brazen feet are going to crush his head. But lastly, we need to understand that Christ's brazen feet, man, they're going to crush sinners. They're going to crush sinners. Isaiah chapter 63. Man, this is strong, but, but I, I pray you hear it with grace and ears to hear. Look at verse 1. Isaiah 63 for verse 1, a prophecy about Christ. It says, Who is this then that cometh from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? This, is, this that is glorious in his apparel, tra- traveling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Wherefore thou art red in thine apparel, and thy garments are like him that treadeth the wine fat, and have trodden the winepress alone. And the people, there was none with me, for I would tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury. Their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Listen, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. I mean, what you have in Isaiah 63 is a prophecy concerning Christ. And, and what it says is that, listen, when the day of vengeance comes, man, he's going to be like a, a harvester that's harvested grapes. And, and listen, if you study that thing of the wine press, a harvester would harvest grapes and they would put them in this big vat. And then they would take their shoes off and walk in this vat and just crush the grapes and as you're crushing those grapes, man, that stuff's splashing up on you, and it's, it's getting grape juice all over your garments. And, of course, that, that vat was set up to where that liquid would run off into a container, and ultimately that's what they would make wine out of. And so, and so man, that, that, that typology or that picture of the wine press, of someone crushing grapes until the juice comes out. Man, listen, the Word of God likens God's judgment of sinners like that and and can I tell you that's before the lake of fire you say well man that's the Old Testament God okay Revelation chapter 14 verse 17 says another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle saying thrust in thy sharp sickle and gathered the clusters of the vine of the earth, and her grapes were fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle in the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, outside the city. And blood came out of the winepress. Even of the horse's bridle, by a space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. You say, man, that's disturbing. Yeah, it is. It is disturbing. Revelation 19, verse 15. Again, second coming of Christ. 
It says, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see, there is a coming judgment for sin and for sinners. And there is a coming judgment from the one that died for our sin on the cross of Calvary, where he comes in his glory to regain and restore a kingdom that's rightfully his and to deal with those that reject him and his offer of salvation and forgiveness. And it's at this point in the Bible that most Christians and most preachers decide the book of Revelation, well, it can't be literal. I'm much more comfortable if that's just symbolic. God doesn't really care about your comfort as it relates to his word. You say, well, that's just symbolic. Or that's just the Old Testament angry God, not the New Testament God of love and forgiveness. And, and, And I would say this, listen, what characteristic and nature of God ever ceases to exist? We believe that he's holy. We believe that he's love. We believe that he's full of grace. We believe that he's full of mercy. Amen, amen, amen. But he's also just, and he also is the judge of the earth, and he will come as the conquering king, and those characteristics do not defeat, delete, or delineate any of his other characteristics. It's the same God, and he's worthy of praise no matter what. And so listen, as a Christian, we have no right to say, oh, that's just symbolic. I'll sleep better tonight knowing that that's just symbolic. Or if those of you think it's just the Old Testament God or the angry God, I I would remind you that 2 Thessalonians is in your New Testament. By the way, Revelation is too. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us, verses 7 to 10, as Paul writes to this church, whom he only had a limited portion of time with, he says, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, And that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be mired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed. Listen, in that day, the day of the Lord. And and, and so listen, we, we soberly need to understand that the second coming of Christ is going to be just like an Old Testament Jew who harvested some grapes, put them in a wine press, crushed them with his feet until the juice comes out. And it stains his garment. At At the second coming of Christ, there'll be a 200 million man army. See Revelation 9 and verse 16 for reference that are Christ-rejectors, Christ-haters, that are anti-Christ in heart and spirit. And when Christ returns, he will literally crush those who have rebelled and rejected him, and their blood will rise to the horse's bridle. So, So what Christ is revealing through his brazen feet is his judgment. It's his judgment. And listen, that, that group at Thyatira and that woman Jezebel needed to know about 
and cling to what Christ revealed. He's the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He has all authority. He is full of justice because his eyes are as a flame of fire. And man, his feet are fine brass. And they will come in judgment and absolutely crush his enemies. Now listen, how do we walk out of here after hearing that? Okay, well, yeah. I think the thing we need to make sure of is that we're on the right side of his judgment. And, and so the way that you can ensure you're not on the receiving end of what absolutely will happen according to the word of God is to be on the side of judgment where Christ died for your sin on the cross of Calvary. It's coming to the place that you realize, you know what? Christ laid down his life. He's God in the flesh. He had no sin at all, but he laid down his life for me. And he was buried and rose again the third day according to scriptures, and he did it for me and for the sin of the world. And listen, if you would come to the place where you realize that your sin has been judged at the cross of Calvary, then you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. And I don't know your story, man. I know a lot of your stories, but I don't know all your stories. If you're sitting here today and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm sitting in a church and I can teach some lessons and I can do some religious things, but you don't have a personal testimony of salvation in Jesus Christ, can I, can I beg you? Make today the day of salvation in your life. Come to Christ today. Accept his free gift of salvation today. Don't reject his offer of forgiveness and grace and mercy today because that day of judgment's coming. That day of judgment's coming. Thyatira needed to know that. The truth is, community fellowship needs to know it too. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning, God.